You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Drew Seacrest, who is the co-founder and CEO of Connect the Dots. Drew was part of the team that grew Salesforce from zero to over one billion in revenue. During that time, he was both the number one sales manager globally and the number one account executive globally. He helped define best practices for both high volume sales and large enterprise transactions. A huge part of Drew's success was leveraging the relationships in his network and mastering the art of the warm introduction. On today's show, we talk about what was the ride like being at Salesforce from zero to over a billion in revenue? Where do most startups mess up with sales training? How should a startup think about the sales process? How should young companies think about their sales compensation packages? How important is timing and how important is luck when building a company? And much more. All right, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm super excited to introduce this week's guest on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Drew, I've gotten... I've done a lot of research on your career and it's absolutely incredible. For our audience, before diving into the questions, can you give a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Yeah. Well, first of all, Sean, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I guess this is the Silicon Valley podcast. So the story of my career, I think, starts with my, really, it starts with a cold email to Mark Benioff when I was in North Carolina. It was in one of my first jobs out of college in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I had I was at that point working for a integrator that would sell and implement Salesforce automation systems and business intelligence software. So companies like Goldmine and SalesLogix, Sean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember those, they're pretty early. And Seagate Crystal Info, which was later acquired by Business Objects, which was later acquired by SAP. So all, there are all these products out there that were sold through a channel of partners. And, and those partners would literally drive out and, with a CD-ROM and install the software on a company's computers and configure them and get them all set up. And that's what I was doing. So I was working for a company in North Carolina that did that. And there was a story in the Wall Street Journal sometime that maybe like July of 1999, something like that that this guy named Mark Benioff was leaving Oracle and he had gotten $2 million from Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle, to go start a thing called salesforce.com. And they were going to rewrite Salesforce automation software from the ground up to run on the internet, like inside of a web browser. And I read that and I looked on one hand, what I was doing was like implementing all this client server software that did the same stuff. And then I saw this vision that Mark Benioff had painted here to just like just make this a website. You don't have to have software. You can literally just have a website that you go to and you get all the functionality you need. And it was mind blowing. I literally was just like like oh my god, I see the future. This is going to happen. So I called you and said, said Mark, we're a reseller. We resell these other products similar to what you're doing. When your product comes to market, I'd be interested in reselling your product. Could we talk about that? And he got back to me almost immediately and said, sorry, Drew, we're not going to have a reseller channel. We're going to sell this direct. We're going to have our own sales team. And I replied to him immediately saying, well, then maybe we should talk about something else because I think what you're really on to something and I'd like to be involved in some way, shape or form. And he said, fly out to California and let's talk. And so I did. Hopped on a plane, went out to San Francisco. Salesforce had just moved out of the apartment next to his apartment. That, their first office was the apartment next to his apartment in Telegraph Hill in San Francisco. Wait, Drew, did you fly out on your own dime 
to San Francisco. Did you see this as that huge of an opportunity where you just dropped everything and made this priority? I would have, but and I remember here's just a funny little detail. I was like, yeah, so I so I ended up getting a ticket flight from Charlotte, North Carolina, out to San Francisco, and. and I was a good frugal boy from Lewisbury, Pennsylvania. We always bought the cheapest ticket. That's how our family always did it. So I got the cheapest ticket possible, which kind of a lousy itinerary, really the early flight, super long layover somewhere. And, uh, but then I ended up getting into San Francisco and changed into my suit and went and met with Mark Benioff. And they had just moved out of the first office that, that Salesforce was in, which was first office was an apartment next to Mark's apartment in Telegraph Hill in San Francisco. So they had just like that week moved to this kind of new spacious place downtown in San Francisco on, I think it was on Mission Street. And it was kind of empty, most mostly empty because it was way more people than they had. They probably had a dozen people at that point, but it was kind of a beehive of activity. People were coming in and out of there a lot. And so I went in and I met with Mark and I, I told him my, my background was what I'd been doing recently in, in that last year was selling and implementing the products that he was definitely going to be competing with the Salesforce automation, client server, Salesforce automation applications out there, and also the business intelligence tools that went with that on top of them. And I knew the problem for sure with that model, with the client server model. I understand the problem that you're going to solve. I think that your approach is going to be super elegant and solve a lot of those problems. So I'd love to be involved. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I can kind of I can do anything for you except code. I can't code that well. So if you want me to do something other than that, I can probably do a pretty good job for you. You tell me. And he said, I want you to go sell. So he made me one of his first account executives at Salesforce. And this is before there was even a final product, right? There's a beta product. And we had, when I started the job, maybe two weeks later or whatever it was, because I had to go back to Charlotte, tender my resignation. And then I flew out. I didn't even pack up my apartment yet. I flew out and lived in a corporate apartment for a month or so until I could go back to Charlotte, grab my stuff, put it in the U-Haul and drive it across country to San Francisco. But, but, you know, when it started, we just... Had, I'm just uh, kind of also wondering, is, was this kind of your personality at this time where you just saw this opportunity no matter what you went for this? Or was this a pretty unusual going all in at the casino kind of move for you? <laughs> Somebody recently asked me if I was a risk taker by nature. And I think it's pretty lumpy. There's some things I'm, some things I look at and I say, that's not a risk at all. Like, like I looked at my alternative. Mark quadrupled my income in one move. He was like... Here's your comp plan. <laughs> and it was literally 4X. Now I had to go earn it. And I understood that it was a variable comp plan based on my performance. But if you hit these numbers, this is what your comp's going to be. So is that really a big risk leaving North Carolina for a job in this the in Silicon Valley, working with this hot new tech company, getting paid 4X? I don't know. It didn't seem like a big risk to me. So if I had gone to work for a startup company and they're like, hey, here's a bunch of equity and basically no salary, then yeah, it'd be a different thing. There'd be more risk involved. But this to me was a no brainer. I kind of just got won a ticket to the big leagues and I was definitely going to take it. Okay. So you got this opportunity that you opened up the doors more or less to get, and then you're there. There's still no sales. You don't have the product. What was it like those early days when there is pretty much no revenue to well, you were there all the way up to billion dollars in revenue. What was that yeah. ride like? Well, it was a strange time. 1999 was crazy, absolutely crazy. That was the dot-com bubble at its height. And so it was super fun. It was really exciting. There were all these parties happening in San Francisco. Like Every night, there were multiple launch parties to pick from. I remember at one point, my friends, my new friends from Salesforce and I, 
We're like, hey, I think we could probably make it an entire week without spending any money on food. We can just party hop and go to these launches and we could have free breakfast, free lunch, free dinner. And we did that. Like we we made it a point to go do that. And it was not hard. So it was super exciting and fun. And revenue, who cared? Revenue wasn't a thing. It was all about eyeballs in 1999. Everyone wanted eyeballs on their website. And then they figured eventually we'll monetize based on eyeballs. So Salesforce wasn't even... 100% sure at that point, like what the business model was going to be. And actually the comp plan for the sales team, the early sales team, I you wouldn't, I haven't seen a company do it like this since. But back then, when, during the heyday of the dot-com bubble, Mark hired a bunch of people to be sales before there was a product to sell. It was just a beta product and we were giving it away for free. And the salespeople were actually, you know, our job at first was give this thing away to for free to a bunch of people and get their feedback on it. And and we did that for a while. And there was a point when we actually had a meeting as a sales organization to discuss how should we be compensated? How should our variable comp work? Should it be based on revenue or should it just be based on getting free users on the product? We literally had that conversation. And now I think there's actually, there was an early point in the company where that kind of makes sense. Get a lot of people on the product and then you're going to figure out what product market fit looks like. But we were getting to the point where it was like, that's not sustainable. You can't live on venture capital forever. You need to you need to have revenue. That's how companies work. And so I was one of the, I think I was probably an unpopular guy in the sales team at that point who said, I think we should be compensated on revenue because that you can grow a company like that. And I think everybody's like, Shh, what are you doing? Shut up. <laughs> Let's just get paid on free users. It's so easy. So, <laughs> I'm amazed they didn't throw you out of the room right then. Yeah, I, that was not a popular opinion to hold. But the reality was then the dot-com bubble burst. And like we before that happened, we actually started selling the product. So at some point, we said, okay, this is the day or Monday is going to be the day we are going to start selling this. And it's going to be $50 per employee or per user per month. That's going to be the pricing. And there's no negotiation. And we didn't have annual contracts. It was just like, you sign up and if you have 10 people and you pay us 10 times 50 bucks for that month. And that's how we started. And we ended up, we started selling it. And I remember it was a nervous day at first because taking that leap kind of off the ledge and like, is this good enough? Are people actually going to pay us for it? And surprisingly enough, they did. And so we got our first customers and we're off to the races. So that $50 a month, there wasn't any market study of, hey, we, we think 35, we get this percentage sign on, 100, we would get this. Or it was literally just like, hey, what number do you think is good? I don't know, 50, how's that sound? Well, that it was that number came from Mark. And it wasn't, it's not like we all decided what that number was going to be. Mark looked at two kind of limiters on what the price should be. One was... Siebel was the high end of the market at that point. Siebel and maybe SAP. And there were some other kind of like higher end products out there. And I forget what they were per license, but they're probably like, I don't know, $1,500 or a thousand or something like that. And that was just for license. Now there's a lot more to the cost to implement that you'd have to have your own servers and you have to have a team to set it up and all that stuff. But that was kind of the high mark. And then the low mark were things like Act or Goldmine or SalesLogix is a mid-market product at that point. Those are the things that, you know, kind of somewhere in between those two, a little bit on the lower side, that's where he thought this could work. And we're big on total cost of ownership. You don't have to have any servers for us. You don't have to have an IT team. You literally just give us your credit card and you're off to the races. You get 10, 20, 100 people running on salesforce.com. So no, there were no big studies at that point. It was intuition. It was Mark's intuition. Mark's intuition has proven to be pretty darn good. And and then over the years, we started to bring in the MBAs who did things in a much more analytic way. And then we 
figured out pricing and came up with the pricing structures. And now I'm sure it's like a very complicated process over there to figure out how they're going to price any new product. But in the early days, it was, this is what Mark thinks is good. Let's go for it. So from those early days to go into that billion in revenue, where did you see the biggest changes happen with the company in terms of like sales strategy or how sales was done? And this could also go over to other companies or startups in general, that sales cycle of just go out there to sell to, okay, here's the actual process we're going to follow and going to do. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was pretty shoot from the hip. Honestly, we were finding people had heard about us. Mark's a pretty good marketer. So even though we were small, People had heard about us and we'd get some inbound leads. We also would tap into our personal networks there. I, we, a lot of us in the sales team were too young to have much of a network, but Mark had a good network and our senior leadership team had good networks. And so we would tap into those people and get warm intros. And that, that's how we started. And then it, it, another major thing just to point out here is there were no contracts and we weren't sure we would ever have contracts. When we started, it was just $50 per user per month. You go in, you sign up online, you click through the terms of service, and that's it. You get a, I think we, yeah, I don't think we had credit card billing right away. I think they said it is, I forget exactly how they paid, but they would, they would pay on a monthly basis and they could go up and down and turn their licenses off whenever they wanted. Then when the dot com bubble burst, it first, it forced us to look at annual contracts. That was the first time, basically, the dot com bubble burst. We had a bunch of companies go out of business almost overnight. Like 30% of our customers were just dead. There's no more funding for them. They were gone. And we sold to we sold the dot coms. So it was a big hit for us. That was our primary target. And they were the ones who suffered the worst when the dot com bubble burst. And it was very like a very bad time to raise money, unfavorable terms. And so Mark made the decision that we were going to sell annual contracts and collect cash up front. And we would incentivize the sales team to do that. There were bonuses getting cash in advance because that was in lieu of another round of funding and diluted of a fundraise. And that turned out to be great. We're, again, we were kind of jumping off the ledge, start stepping off the ledge and wondering if we're going to land on the other side safely. And could we get companies to pay in advance for a year? And we did. It worked out. And then that's now standard at Salesforce. That started all because of the dot-com bubble and because of the need for cash. There was It was tough times. It kind of actually turned out quite differently. Salesforce had it continued to be easy to raise cash at great great valuations. Maybe we wouldn't have done that as quickly. Maybe things would have shaped up a little bit differently, and Salesforce would have been a more like month by month type company as opposed to annual and advanced company that we all know it is today. But that was probably major overhaul number one to the sales process. I'd say the the next step that I would think probably warrants being called out as like the big transition was when we went from selling around IT to selling to IT. So in the beginning, we were basically the skunk works option for sales organizations that were like, hey, our IT team, they don't give us what we need. If we ask for something, we need a CRM system. We have to write up a big spec and there's a big process and a review and a vendor evaluation. And it's like, you know what? Like eight months have gone and we haven't gotten what we needed. All we needed was just a simple you know, roll up of all of our accounts and opportunities and a forecast. That's all we needed. We didn't need eight months of evaluation and all this stuff from IT. So guess what? We just did it. <laughs> we just we talked to Salesforce. We talked to the Salesforce account executive and they said, hey, your 30 licenses will cost this much. And we said, fine, here we go. Here's our credit card. And they got up and running. And then IT inevitably was then pissed off at us. They, were, they, they saw us as their enemy because 
they didn't want these skunk works projects popping up. They wanted to control all of the IT infrastructure. And so I remember at some point it was it was actually I think it was Macromedia was the company when we realized like, oh, we're growing up now, we have to behave differently. We had sold around IT at Macromedia, which was later acquired by Adobe. And they and IT didn't like us, but we were successfully in there. And then at some point they wanted to roll out to a much larger group and they needed IT to buy into it. And I ended up going to their office to meet with the CIO and with my boss at the time. And the CIO made us wait for a long time. I think intentionally is like, I'm going to schedule you for an hour before I actually intend to show up. So we just waited there forever. And we understood that this is like, this is a message to us. This is what you get for selling around me. And we went in and we said, look, we're sorry. We understand. We, we want to make up. We want to be friends. We want to work with IT going forward. We had to do what we had to do. We're a company that we have to deliver results for. You weren't interested in working with us. And so we sold around you. But now we'd like to all play nice. And so we ended up playing nice and everything worked out great. And then from that moment on, our sales strategy actually changed. We stopped basically you know, CIOs and IT. We just avoided them up until that point. And then up after that, we knew that they had to be part of the buying decision if we're going to sell larger transactions and move up into the enterprise. So our sales motion changed and we figured out what the value proposition was for them. And one, one thing to think about was they could see us potentially as a threat because if you have on-premise software, you need an IT team to manage the hardware, manage the upgrade process, all that stuff. And if everything ran on what was what we now call the cloud, but didn't really have a term for it exactly back then, we call it SaaS mostly, then maybe you don't need as many people. And so that could be threatening. And also maybe you don't have as much control because you don't have the servers to go look at and do whatever you want to do with those servers. Their servers are this abstract concept that they're you know, running out there in the cloud somewhere. So I would say that was probably the next big transition. How disruptive would you say just the whole cloud infrastructure SaaS was to, right there you'd mentioned disrupting the IT department, all those jobs there potentially, the control issue probably the fear from legal, all these things probably were playing a huge part in the decisions to all these companies. And then you guys came in and was just disrupting everything. So how do you, how was the other side looking at this at that time in, in the evolution of technology in Silicon Valley? Yeah, we had our champions. They were the sales organization. And we, a lot of them were originally the sales team, like sales, individual salespeople. They liked us because we were simple to use compared to the other stuff they were being forced to use. And their sales leadership is like, hey, it's simple and I get the reports I need. And the nice thing about sales is the organization that brings in the money. And so they have a lot of say. And uh, so they could kind of force their way through the process and get us in the door as a vendor. But later it was like everybody else eventually found the value proposition. So now if you look at Salesforce today in 2023, the CIO, the value propositions for them, for, the, for marketing, for HR, for operations for finance. And it's also become just like the safe bet. Salesforce is, you know, there are a lot of case studies about how it's been implemented effectively, safely all over the place. And so it's just an entirely different world that they operate in now. It's interesting to see that's 
what happens as a technology goes from being a new innovation to becoming the standard for an industry. That's gradually what happens. Everybody just understands their role in it and that this is the new norm. And yeah, that's what happened. So going with Salesforce from zero to a billion, working with all these sales team when selling the product, you got insight into so many different companies, operations as they're building out their sales team. Where do you see kind of startups or a lot of these companies kind of mess up with either their sales training, their sales processes. Our listeners are a lot of entrepreneurs and out building companies. And this is a question that comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Well, you're right. I did have a, I had a great opportunity, particularly in the early days of Salesforce to see a bunch of startups use our product and then build their first sales teams. But that's going back a pretty long ways. And a lot has changed since then. So in the early 2000s, when I was running around San Francisco and selling Salesforce to these small companies, there weren't these like sales communities online to tap into for knowledge. There, there wasn't a lot of knowledge sharing. It was mostly like who you knew that and like you worked at Oracle before or Siebel or SAP or whatever company. And then you would kind of learn the process that they use there. And that's what you would bring in as your template and probably scale it down for your startup. But that's kind of how things work. And so... What I guess I'm the first thing I would point out is like the world's different now. So if we're going to talk about what the world's like today, startups today have kind of the opposite problem. They have too much information. <laughs> there are so many experts out there that you can turn to to get good guidance on how to structure your sales organization, your sales process, to design your sales process. There are for there are forums that you can participate in and do a lot of knowledge sharing. You can talk about compensation. Like there are all these online forums where I'm getting paid this. Is that good? Is it too high? Is it too low? That stuff just didn't exist before. So I think I'll be a little self-serving in this answer here, but it's really true. I was just at a Saster's London event. Are you familiar with Saster? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that event here, it's a huge event. Yeah. They do one in Europe as well every year. And this one was in London last week, I think. I was up there. Yeah. And I was in a session watching the former CRO of Rex named Sam Blonde give a presentation about what to do in the early days when you're selling. And he said, number one thing in the early days is you got to leverage your personal network to get off the ground. Like all your your first customers, your first people you're going to reach out to, tap your investors, advisors, board members, your colleagues, tap those networks, get your foot in the door. And, and I think a lot of companies know this and do this, but I think that they can take it to the next level. And I think actually, by getting too self-serving, that's what I'm focusing my efforts on today. This is my new project. My company is called Connect the Dots. And Connect the Dots help individuals and organizations see all of their network and see the relationship, the strong relationships that they can tap into to get to the companies that, that they want to target. And so we we think that is the way to break through the noise in 2023 and beyond when you're selling is you should be tapping your personal networks. That's the most effective way to get your foot in the door at an account. Well, well, staying on that topic of your personal networks, then how, say someone coming out of the university that doesn't have the network versus maybe someone that's been around for 10, 15 years. For example, you'd mentioned Salesforce, Mark had a network, the investors had a network, the new sales guy didn't. So how does that work for employment of that? Who do you seek out? This person that doesn't have a network or this person that does? And how do you put a value on that network that they're bringing when you're doing the interview or for the sales job? Yeah, I think the answer is both. They just, they bring something different to the game. So when I was hired by 
Mark at Salesforce in 1999, I had no network. I, did, I really didn't even know anybody in California or anybody west of the Mississippi, literally. And so my network was useless, but I had a, I had a, I was eager. <laughs> I was really willing to run through walls and get the job done. And I had an eager partner and who was willing to open up his Rolodex for me. And that was Mark Benioff. And it wasn't just Mark. Mark set the tone. He, anybody he knew and could make an introduction for, he would do it for any of us. But you know, by setting that tone, everybody in the company did that. We were all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And so if our CFO or our director of product management or whoever it is in the organization had a relationship that we could leverage, we would leverage it. And we'd do it shamelessly. <laughs> like those things were, we were all in all the time to, to leverage relationships. The problem was mostly just like being able to know who knew who. You really couldn't. Back in 1999, it was hard to suss that out. You'd have to literally send all hands emails. Like we had, you used to have an all hands at Salesforce email, which I'm sure is now, I would imagine is now retired or used very sparingly because it's what, 80,000 people. But back then when it was like 60 people or something, you could send an email to all hands and say, hey, we're trying to sell to Cisco systems. Anybody know anybody there? And then you get some responses back and then like, okay, great. Thanks. I'll take the intro. So that was the hard part was figuring out who knew who. And that got easier over time with the advent of like LinkedIn and figured out how you could leverage those relationships. But I think a big lesson for everybody is the culture is set from the top down and marks at the perfect culture. Like we're all in, we're all going to help the sales team get into these accounts. If you've got any relationships at all, bring them forward because we're all going to succeed by leveraging these relationships. I'm really curious going back to that saying, your network is your net worth. I'm yeah. curious there if everyone was so open and sharing with their network, how is the compensation? And, and you don't need to answer. We could go on the next question, but I'd be really curious because someone probably say right there, hey, I know someone at Cisco at the top, but I want my referral fee or, hey, I get a yeah. whatever tiered structure down here, even if the person's maybe in, I don't know, marketing or maybe it's an engineer or someone like, hey, if I make this intro, I should still get a bite of the yeah. apple. I'm really glad you asked that question because this question doesn't get asked enough. And I'm a little, I'm a little perplexed that in my two plus decades of Silicon Valley experience that I don't see more like direct financial incentive for your colleagues to participate in driving a pipeline, helping you find new deals. At Salesforce, no, there was no like, if our CFO knew the CFO at a target company, the CFO wasn't going to get a piece of that. Now, CFOs are pretty high up there. So you might not expect the CFO to get a VIG on, on a deal, but you might expect like, well, I'm just a, let's say I'm a junior accounting employee. And I know when I happen to know somebody at the company that's pretty senior that we were selling to, shouldn't I get a piece of that? Give me something for the effort. And I'll tell you what happened at Salesforce. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I've, I'm now seeing a little bit at Salesforce. No. <laughs> You just do that for the good of the company. And everybody had equity in the company. That was actually the magic bullet was everybody had equity in the company. So the junior accounting employee was like, hey, if I give this lead to Drew and Drew sells it, then that's going to help us increase the value of the company. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do everything I can. That's, I think, the easiest way to do it. It's the easiest way. The other thing I would say is culturally, it was heavily endorsed that you should do this. So there was a lot of thanking a lot of gratitude and a lot of leading by example from Mark on down that you should do this. And that combination worked really well for us. It was great. But as companies get bigger and not every company has, not every employee has equity in every company, then it becomes a little bit more of a challenge. Like why, what's in it for me? And, and I think you want to do your very best as a company to foster the culture where whatever you have to do, get everybody's incentives in line. 
And, uh, and I think equity is great for that. Everybody, I'm a big believer that everybody in the company should have equity, or you could have a bonus structure that the company pays out bonuses, cash bonuses, if the company hits and exceeds its targets, but do something to get everybody on the same page, like that we should all succeed. Our collective success is going to be my individual success too. So that I was surprised. I, I have been surprised and I haven't seen some sort of like referral program in companies pop up and become popular where you as an employee get paid or finding great opportunities, like generating good leads and passing those to the sales team. It really hasn't happened at scale. I will tell you about one example that I've seen, but in general, that just didn't happen. And in at Salesforce, if somebody made a really good introduction to turn into a really good deal, and usually what, what I would do and what other salespeople would do, they would get something nice for that person. And who knows what that would. It might be like, dinner out at Gary Danko or something like that you know, as a thank you, depending on how big the deal was. Strangely, I think we all know that like in every tech company in Silicon Valley, if you refer somebody in who gets hired, you get paid for that in almost every company. And it's pretty obvious, like it's easy for them to account for that. If you are, if you're referring, like, let's say, Sean, I refer you in as an employee to be VP of product management. If they haven't talked to you before, if I'm the first person who has sent this to HR, to recruiting, it's easy for them to say, Drew is the source for this opportunity, for this candidate opportunity. And then if Sean takes the job and stays for three months or whatever the minimum is, then Drew gets $2,000 or whatever the company pays out for that. That's pretty straightforward because you're like one person. You're one person and there's like this binary mark on you that Drew is the source of Sean as a candidate. With a complex B2B sale, it's there are a lot of things that happen touching that account. So it's hard to attribute exactly. It's harder for like if I referred in Acme Inc. to my company and said, hey, I think there's an opportunity here. I know the VP of marketing and I can make an introduction for the sales team. What if they had already been on our website and they'd been downloading some information from us? What if the account executive six months ago talked to a director of marketing over there or somebody else? What if? There are all these different touch points. So it's harder to attribute that lead to one person. Not impossible. You can you just have to make some decisions to, to do it or not. But it has not taken off. And I actually think that's a really big opportunity because we have networks. We have really good networks. And when you hire a team in Silicon Valley and beyond and kind of like the global Silicon Valley, these people all know people. And those relationships are powerful. We know what it's like to get an email or a phone call from somebody we know well versus an email or a phone call from somebody we don't know at all. One of those you don't pick up and the other one you pick up. And so why are we not tapping into that? And I think there's complexity around accounting for who actually drove the lead and when, at what point do we pay out for the lead? Do we just pay for the lead? Do we pay for the lead when it hits a certain stage in the sales process? Do we pay for it when it closes? Do we pay, do we pay more if it's a big deal that closes? And how do we calculate that? There's complexity. It's not a horrible amount of complexity. I think somebody had to come up with a formula and just say, this is how you should do it and kind of standardize that across companies because there is a lot of latent revenue just sitting in your network. And you need to incentive if you really want people to like go crazy and shake the tree and find all the opportunity in it, you need to have some wood behind that arrow. And like money talks. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of like doing favors and dealing in the currency of favors. I, I'm happy to make introductions between two people when I think it's in their mutual best interest. I don't need a piece of that transaction. I'm I am a connector and I really like doing that. I get I, my dopamine hit is totally enough for me in that situation. But if you want to make this thing scale inside of your company, I think people ought to put some executives, 
CEOs ought to put some real thought into like, how do we make this program work and put wood behind the arrow? We do have one customer that's doing this right now. And they're actually doing it. They're now using Connect the Dot to like supercharge it. But they were actually, they started the program even before they started using Connect the Dots. And they have generated a lot of pipeline uh, from from their existing employee base. And I think if I recall correctly, it's like once an opportunity hits qualified, like sales qualified level two, then the employee who referred the opportunity in gets paid 500 bucks. And then if it closes, they get another 500 bucks. So all they have to do is say, hey, I know the VP of marketing over at this company. That could be a good fit. You want me to make an intro? And then they're like, sure. And that's all they do, make the intro. And they can make a thousand bucks from that. And and if they know 10 people like that or 20 people like that, you can make a lot of extra money for making this tap in your network. And now people are really, what I've seen in that company is that it's not just the sales, like the salespeople are the ones who are usually trying to figure out who knows who and then asking their colleagues, hey, could you make an introduction for me? That's awesome. They should do that. But what we're seeing at this company is it's flipped on its head. You got like the junior accounting person saying, hey, I know somebody who could be a really good fit. Can Here's a lead. Here's a lead. Here's a lead. And that's awesome. When you're in sales and you're just like, you're getting inbound from your colleagues proactively saying, hey, I think I can get you in this account. I think I can get you in this account. It's so nice. And uh, it's a total win. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how many of these companies have this engineer that's the Stanford alumni, this one that's the MIT alumni, this one who was at a company 10 years ago. And since then, all those people have branched off into other companies. And these engineers or accounts are just sitting there with this Rolodex of just wealth that haven't been tapped into up into this point. And half the time, they're probably just at lunch going, oh, you were, you wanted a, a connection there? Oh, I, I knew the CTO from 10 years back. Oh, you should have asked me or something like that. Where Yeah. Yeah, it happens all the time. There's this one story that's still kind of haunting, like this one company told us. They closed a deal with HCA, Hospital Corporation of America, after in a small deal. It took a long time to finally get a little pilot launched at the company. They sold to that vertical, and they want to sell a large transaction. So they were crap, banging their head against the wall, finally got in after a year, got a small pilot. It was like a year of grinding, hard work to get in there and barely getting a toehold. And then as soon as it happened and it was announced in the company, then there was it's like a junior business analyst at the company said, oh, that's incredible. My parents, I forget it was mom or dad, is like one of the top seven executives at the company. <laughs> and nobody knew. I'm like, they, they were grinding for that whole time. And it could have just been like, if they'd seen that, and then they could have just said, hey, can you ask your parents can you send them this note saying, hey, the company that I work for does this really cool thing that really helps companies like Hospital Corporation of America. Would you be willing to talk to one of our executives to get the overview and see if this could be of interest? How do you think that would have turned out? They would have accelerated. Like, like there's a year there's a year of work that's just like, you can't get that time back. You can't get that time back. And, and that's the problem. The real problem is like, how do you see all those relationships? How do you know those relationships? And that's what we're here to do. We're here to help companies like illuminate all those pathways and see which ones are really leverageable and not make these dumb mistakes. Looking back a year later, doing the face palm saying, why did we not know that we could have had lots of revenue much earlier? So before diving in and really going deep into what you're working on right now with Connect the Dots, after Salesforce, you took some time off, uh, two years to travel. How important is it to have that kind of recharge, that break period in your career? 
would you recommend this uh, for everyone out there? Or was this one of those things where you look back and go, ah, not for yeah. everyone? <laughs> no. Well, it's not for everybody. For me, so I did Salesforce for 10 years. I know when I was younger, I read, oh, what is the book by Ayn Rand, Fountainhead. And Howard, Howard have you ever read that? Howard Work was, I think. The- Atlas Shrug, all those. I've read all of yeah. Ayn Rand's books. Okay. So at the time, Howard Work, I believe that was the protagonist's name, kind of identified with him. Like, I'm kind of, I'm all in or not in at all. And uh, I don't, for the 10 years that I was at Salesforce, I was all in and it was awesome. It was an amazing learning experience. It was incredible. It was no, no doubt about it, but I didn't really take vacations very much. I was on, on. And so it's not to say I didn't have some life balance. I like, I wove it into my life. Like I was on, I was always, you know, managing the business that I was responsible for. At the end of 10 years, I just decided, okay, I got to do something else. I know I need to be an entrepreneur. I had an idea I wanted to go pursue. And I did take time off. I took, I think I took two or three months off at that point. And, and I did a, did a motorcycle tour through like through Mexico back when it was safer. I don't know if I do it today. Back then it was good. Actually, that tour ended like right as things were getting bad with the drug wars. And so I could sense Mexico getting worse as I was there for like two months. And I was like, this is starting to feel a little shady. And I got out right before they started beheading people and with all this really terrible stuff that was going on. So anyway, I had a great time doing that. And then I traveled through Asia for a bit. And then I started my company. And that three months was like, I think, super necessary for me to just decompress after a decade of being on nonstop. And so anyway, that was great. So that startup didn't work out. It was a company called Kuzu. It was a really fun, interesting project, but it ended up not working out. So we shut the company down. And then after that, I was that was a pretty big emotional beatdown for me. So after coming off this huge success of Salesforce, I had this big failure of Kuzu and and I didn't know what I wanted to do next. One of the worst things about that was just at the end, like, okay, what do I do now? I had this vision that I was pursuing and and it's not going to happen. What next? Like I didn't have a plan B. And so I kind of I needed to take time off because I didn't know what else to do. And luckily my Salesforce experience was among other things, it was also very lucrative. <laughs> so it gave me the ability to go take some time off. And I ended up living in in Europe, primarily out of Barcelona and learned to sail. And I picked up surfing as a hobby and traveled a bunch. I had a motorcycle over there and traveled all around Europe. And it was great. I had a really great time and learned Spanish. And and that was great and gave me time to like think about what I wanted to do next. So for me, I kind of live these cycles where I'm all in on something and then I'm like all out for a while. And then thinking about what I want to do next. And then I'm all in and then I'm all out. And I don't know if that'll continue. Maybe I've run all my cycles like that. But that's what I've been doing up until now. And I is it for everybody? No, it's not for everybody. Not everybody. I think it's harder. I am I'm gonna turn fifty in two months. And which I can't believe is happening, but yep, I'm turning fifty. But I, I've never had any, I've never gotten married, no kids. So I had a lot of flexibility to go do this stuff. And and I know that it's not possible for everybody. I think it'd be really pretty hard to like travel around on a motorcycle through Europe for several months if you had kids. Maybe not impossible. I don't know, maybe two sidecars or something like that. But for me, it was part of, I needed to be captivated with a vision for something to go all in, like for that, that switch to flip. And for me to be like, okay, this is it. I'm all in hundred percent, not 99%, 100%. And so it just doesn't come around that often that I, I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm all in on this thing. And so when I'm not all in on the thing, then, you know, I'm learning to surf or speak Spanish or do from that on a motorcycle. Well, speaking about all in for our listeners at home, where are we having this conversation? Yeah. Why are you there? And, yeah. and tell us about what you're doing now. 
Yeah, I'm all in in Belgrade, Serbia right now. Yeah, so the why am I in Belgrade, Serbia? So we started this company, Connect the Dots, a little over four years ago. And we're headquartered in San Francisco, but we're virtual in San Francisco now. We did have a, we kind of did the same thing Mark did when starting Salesforce. We had an office, which was an apartment right next to my apartment in San Francisco when we started the company. And then during COVID, we all just worked from, it wasn't hard for us to transition to just being remote and everybody went back to their homes and we just met on Zoom. And so when the lease came up for that apartment to renew, we just let it lapse because there was no point. And we never went back to having an actual office in the U.S. So we're, we are virtual in the U.S., but in Serbia, we actually do have an office. I'm in that office right now. We're about 65 people. 60 of them are over here. So this is the center of gravity for us as a company. So I spend a lot of time over here. I'm about 50% of the time here and 50% of the time back in the States. My time over here skews a little bit heavier in the summer because it's really nice over here in the summer. And Pretty lousy, honestly, in the winter. <laughs> so, but but anyway, it's a, it's actually a great place. Why Serbia? So when I left Salesforce and started Kuju, I started it with a guy in San Francisco who is a Serb. He has been in San Francisco longer than I have. He came in the early '90s, I think. And so he and I started the company. And then one of the first things we did, we knew we were going to go to Serbia and then hire an engineering team because great quality of engineers that he knew and the economics were great. So we flew over to Belgrade, Serbia for the first time in my life in 2010, I think, and then met with the team that we were contemplating hiring and got to know them over dinners and drinking Slivovica, Rakia. And you really get to know a Serbian engineer when you share some Slivovica with them. And it's like brandy, really good stuff. And so by the time we were done, we're like, okay, this is this is good. Let's get this thing started. So we hired that team. And then over the course of Suzu's lifespan, which is, I think, a little under four years, I was back and forth between San Francisco and Belgrade a lot. So I, I got very comfortable in Belgrade. And even though the company didn't work out, I look back on it. Steve Jobs had this thing saying, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. I don't know if that was a Stanford speech he gave, commencement speech. I don't know, whenever he did that. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I look back on the Kuzu experience. I'm like, well, Kuzu was a pretty tough experience, to be honest. But the it got me introduced to Belgrade and Serbia and all these pe- these really amazing people. And a, a kid like me from Lewisbury, Pennsylvania, wouldn't have otherwise ended up in Belgrade, Serbia, and wouldn't have had those connections that turned out to be great. So my one of my co-founders, I've got three co-founders in Connect the Dots. One of them is a Serb. And he was the seed crystal for our uh, company over here. And then so we just started gradually hiring, hiring his friends from university. And then we've hired his professor from university. And that's when we knew we we're like, hey, we're getting pretty good if we can hire your professor. And then we kept going from there. And then we built up this really impressive team. And so connected the dots, looking backwards, I'd say, it's really incredible that my life shaped up this way, that I had the opportunity to meet all these great people and start building those relationships. And then now start now build a great company with those great people. And that's why I'm in Belgrade, Serbia. So then with the interest of time in that, what are we going to see from Connect the Dots in the next 18 to 24 months? Or maybe 6 to 12 yeah. months? I'm not sure time frame. Yeah, yeah. What are we going to see from, from the tomorrow, company in the future? Know, you, you, yeah, yeah, you can, you know, you're today. So the what you're going to see is companies are turning us on to build what we call their super graph. And their super graph is all of the relationships neatly organized with this concept of relationship strength, meaning who knows who and how well. Because there are graphs of relationships out there that are just binary graphs, like like Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever. It's like you're connected to the person, 
or, or you're not, or you're not, and that's it. But there's no gradation between how well people know each other. And that's a big problem in sales. Because if you just have a bunch of people who've connected with each other because they like to have big networks, which is the case, that's actually what's happened now, then it makes it very hard to traverse that graph and find the relationships that can get you to the people you want to get to. When she introduced this concept of relationship strength, which we calculate by by measuring, essentially measure the communication data, the email communication data between people over time, potentially like over their entire career spans. So like I've emailed with some people going back 20 years and you can see that's that is all rolled up into this concept of a relationship score showing that Drew has a strong relationship with Sally. And so that's I might look at that and it, it, it neatly organizes all of my contacts so I can see who do I know and how well. And that's super helpful for me. But it's also, it's incredibly helpful then when you use it as an organization, because then everybody, imagine you're sales organ- a company with a sales organization, you have a thousand employees and you can see all the graph of all the relationships with all these people, plus all the people outside your company that are stakeholders, like your investors, your advisors, your board members, your customers, your friends, your former colleagues, anybody. It, that graph, when you look at it, it can get you lots of places like that so that you see that you can get to the CXO at Hospital Corporation of America easily by asking this person and they can, you can see that they really know each other. And so you just do it. And so to your question, what are you going to see from us? More, that's what we're doing right now for companies every day. And they're getting these easy shortcuts into the companies that they're selling to. And the cool thing is our product is designed to be, it's everybody in the world can set up an account and use it for free for life. So you can use that as a company and aggregate all of your employees together, but you as an individual can set it up and use it and you can use it while you're working at your company. And then when you leave the company, you still keep your account and you harvest all of your contacts with you. And then you go to your next company and then you connect it to your new company's account. And then you harvest all your contacts and you do that over and over again. And your contacts just get bigger and bigger and your network gets bigger and bigger. And then it's really like, like you said earlier, your network is your net worth. It's so true. Like then you can pop into all the, you get the shortcut keys everybody you want to get to in the world. And I think we are all, we've seen the volume of like cold sales communication, cold calls, cold emails. It's just gone through the roof. Nobody's got time for it anymore. Like you delete and you hang up on everything. And the secret key is don't do it. You don't have to do it. Build your super graph as a company and then tap into it so you can get to anybody that you want to get to like that. Because it's, you're just calling a friend or you're just calling a colleague. And they're going to pick up. So you're going to see a lot more of that. You're going to see a lot more companies. You're going to see a lot more. You're going to see some companies coming out with big testimonials shortly about the successes that they've had using Connected Dots. And I think you're going to see you're going to see that continued growth of companies shifting away from cold outreach methods to tapping into their super graph and going direct, warm, and simple. As you're talking, I'm just thinking my LinkedIn every day has these cold outreach, my email cold, and, and some of these messages and with AI now at first, I'm like, oh, this is a person I yeah. kind of, oh, wait, no, it's not. It's a sales and unfollow, <laughs> disconnect. And the AI is getting smarter and smarter. So having that, those real connections and those real interests, just I see it being so much more valuable moving forward. I don't know. What are you, before wrapping up, what are your thoughts for what sales is going to be like. You touched on it. It's going to be less cold and more of that connection. But where do you think it's going? And then also, if anyone wants to find out more about Connect the Dots, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah. 
I think I think where sales is going, like B2B sales, I'll focus on that, is less cold, way more warm. So networks, relationships, all the things that you've been investing in your entire life, they become way more important now. That's the way to break through the noise and actually get get into the account, get at the right level and accelerate your pipeline and close transactions. I think that's one thing. I think the other big thing is obviously like AI is here and it's real. And I think it's going to automate. If you look from top to bottom in a sales process, what does the very beginning of the sales process look like all the way to closing the transaction and then beyond implementing, renewing the company? And you just look at that entire stack of activities and you can draw circles around, you know, which parts are going to like, in order, they're going to stop being humans. Because a lot of those, the parts are just going to go away. And I've been thinking about that lately. Like, what are the parts that are still going to be human? We still want to meet with humans on Zoom or in person. Would you want to meet with a human that's like, or would you want to meet with an AI that's a really convincing, not a human, but looks like a human, sounds like a human, is like super, super smart at being a salesperson and telling you all the things you need to know and maybe even not as salesy as a regular salesperson. Maybe uh, they, they, they get my jokes. You never know. <laughs> that's, that'll be easy, Sean. You got a great sense of humor. So you don't need to be a, you don't need to be a super AI to get your jokes. Oh, thank um, you, Drew. <laughs> And I think was there one other question that you asked that I didn't I mean, know how to get to? out about connect the yeah. dots, get in touch with you. Yeah. Well, our website is ctd.ai, like connect the dots, ctd.ai. You can reach me, Drew at ctd.ai. If, and, hey, I'm an email guy. So you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find Drew Seacrest. And my LinkedIn handle is slash Drew Seacrest. So those are the ways to get in touch. Fantastic. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, please look us up on the Silicon Valley Podcast.com for all our past interviews and what we're working on. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Feel free to ping me on LinkedIn and have a conversation. I'm open to earlier the connection, the better. So with that, Drew, I want to thank you and happy 50th birthday. Thanks. Thank you and all listeners from the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only before making any decisions, consult a professional.